Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson on a Tuesday morning. Hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend. What's going on, Sam? Doing good, Steve. How about you? I see you've uh, suffered some damage over the weekend. What happened? You can't really see it, right? Well, is it that noticeable? Yes. Yes, it is. I was chopping down some trees. <laughs> yeah. Handsaw. Chopping them down. Just yanking them down. And one, uh, one got me at the top of the nose there. As I say, yeah. as I said the first time I saw you, that I think given that job and you, that's an that's like the best case scenario to to come out with just like one minor wound <laughs> in the top of your head. Um, no lost appendages, no broken bones, no yeah, broken house. Yeah, like in in the office, you won our uh, bull in a china shop award for just you know you're yeah you're, you're large people tend to be a little bit you know unwieldy when maneuvering around in tight spaces they're not aware of the damage they can cause just by turning around Guilty. and swiping you know giant computer off a desk or whatever so you being armed with a saw and then a chainsaw had bad news written all over it like you could have just lopped off a limb of anybody around easily by mistake yeah, but look, I made it. All right. We chopped down a bunch of trees. We can I could see some neighbors and various things I couldn't see before. It was, it was a good weekend. It's a good productive weekend. Nice. Nice. So, uh, yeah, well, I only came away with this one little battle scar. Should Blue points some... for Steve. Thank you. Yes. Those don't even explain the system. <laughs> Blue points for me. All right. So um, you had some question. We're going to get into the all average team. First of all, we, we've joked about this in the past. Long time podcast listeners. They know what we think of, say, Thomas Jones, the uh, the pinnacle of mediocrity that was Thomas Jones at, at running back, right? 
if you block for three yards, he's getting three. If you block for seven, he'll get seven. And uh, we're going to do that across the league. Who are the most uh, average players across the league? That'll be the the main part of the show. But we also have some some listener questions, Sam. Yeah, got a bunch of questions. So I, I fired out on Twitter, you know, last call for questions. And got a few that we've added to the thing. And then this one came in that I think we should lead off with just because I think it's amazing. Um, I, I didn't prep you with what it was, so I want to get your initial reaction. You're offered, a, you're offered a pill that will make you 10% smarter, but in exchange, it will make you seem 20% less smart to others. Do you take the pill? This guy apparently stole this question from uh, Chuck Klosterman. By the way, this is a uh, thing I've heard before in the past, so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a Chuck Klosterman original, but evidently he used it most recently. So is that like in everything you do? So you can't put your smartness to the test. Like you can't um, find a cure for cancer or you can't, what? So you can't you're, do you're only anything. Gonna, it's only it? moving the needle, right? You're, you're going to become 10% smarter, but you're going to seem 20% dumber to everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would, yeah, I'd, I'd be smarter. You'd take the, I'd smarter? Take the smarter one. Yeah, because I don't care about perception. Really? Yeah, I don't care about perception. It's kind of important, though. Like, if everyone thinks you're dumb, that's not good. Yeah, but it's only 20%. Right, but you actually, you need the opportunity. You need enough people to think you're not an idiot for you to act, for them to actually listen to the 10% smarter stuff you're saying. Otherwise, you're just going to be ignored. Is it 20% off your baseline or 20% after the 10% added? I don't know. They're not that specific with the question. I would suggest the baseline. Mm-hmm. This was the good question that yeah. you came up with. So like you, I'd, I'd be, I'd, I'll take smarter. I don't care what people say. Wow. No, but there's, but the, but there's, there's the point. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna make an impact, you that's do what need I'm saying. To, so look, to listen. think of it this way, right? You got a great idea. You phone up the boss. You phone up Chris. But Chris now thinks you're like you're a fifth dumber than you were the last time you called him up and pitched for an idea. He's not listening to you. It's like I'm not listening to this idiot. I just, yeah. I don't know. If that's the way you want to go. It's only 20% though. I think, I think what you're missing is the things that you can achieve by being 10% smarter might be greater than what happens with the perception of losing 20%. I mean, it depends how smart you are to start with, I guess. Yeah. What about the flip side, right? What if you could become, what if you took a pill that would make you 10% dumber, but would make you seem 20% smarter to everybody else? That's another oh, you, one that you, I think depends how smart you are to begin with. Because like if you don't have, like if you if you're not the sharpest tool in the box to start with, you don't you might not have ten percent to play with. So then you're a fraud. Yeah. And uh, everybody's thinking right now, hmm, that reminds me of this person <laughs> in my life. That reminds me of this guy. That's an idiot and still gets by, right? That's. Uh, I think most people would take um, that one, wouldn't they? Like if you seem twenty percent. Oh, most people, yeah. Smarter, but you were ten percent dumber. Like yeah, Joe Rogan used influence. to have this old bit in one of his uh, shows that was like the thing about dumb people is they don't know they're dumb. So you know you could have like mm-hmm. you could have like one of those home pregnancy test things would just show a color if you're an idiot, no one would believe it and be like you know you lick this strip and it turns blue. Like, God, I'm a moron! Damn it, this thing's ridiculous. It's wrong. I'm not an idiot. Like dumb people don't know they're dumb. So everyone would be like, yeah, I'm a genius. I can take ten percent off this thing. It'd be no problem. Actually, a lot of people don't uh, have ten percent to play with. These are the questions. Well, these are these are thought uh, posers at the start of the podcast, Steve. Six minutes into the podcast, and you're already derailing it. <laughs> this is not derailing Let's it. This is one of the questions. 
It's a good question. It's a good question. I think I'll I'll, I'll be smarter and I'll, I'll I'll find a way to put it to good use. Okay. Um, let's get to the all Thomas Jones team. The all Thomas Jones team. It's the all average team. The team that is as mediocre as it gets. And by the way, mediocre, average, however you want to put it, it's not a knock. Well, that's a, that's that's valuable in the NFL. I mean, it is depends a knock. on where you're coming from. Yeah, it is a knock, but it's also valuable. This is a thing, right? So it's it's a fair point that a lot of people don't always appreciate and don't always think about it, and including us, right? That there's something to this idea of, you know, if you made it to the NFL, like even if you lasted like five minutes and a cup of coffee and then you're back selling insurance, like if you made it as far as the NFL, you, that's a hell of an athletic achievement. If you made it and hung around the NFL for any period of time, like that's – that's impressive. I was listening to some guy recently who's, you know, known as a draft bust, but he was like, look, I hung around the NFL for a few years. Like, that's a thing. You come out of this, it's like, I'm a former football player. It's okay. I'm a former football player. It's known as a bust, but that's only like within the NFL circles. If you go out to play golf with a bunch of car insurance guys, like I was a former football player. I was in the NFL for four years. You weren't like, it's still an achievement. So, it's triple A baseball player right here, right? <laughs> I don't know. I am the, the same cachet. It's pretty close. Sat in a major league bullpen twice mm. legally during Ooh. a game. Yeah. Um. So anyway, like, when you when you're comparing it to like all pros and you know Hall of Famers and all this kind of thing, obviously it's a knock and the best players in the NFL and that's kind of that's what everybody's sort of evaluating when you're doing this stuff, but. You know, being an average NFL player, particularly the longer you're able to do it, <clears throat> like if you last a decade being an average player, that's that's quite an achievement. Uh, you last 20 years, you could be Frank Gore and go to the Hall of Fame. Um, oh, gosh. But yeah, so it's it's all these players have lasted for a decent period of time. They've been least league average players, which is an achievement in and of itself. On the other hand, they're making the all Thomas Jones team because it's kind of funny. So for anyone that's not been listening long enough to know the Thomas Jones deal, we Thomas Jones became, this is a former Bears running back. Who else did he play for? Other teams. Um, Cardinals. There you go. Jets. <clears throat> so Thomas Jones became the archetype of the player that would get you exactly what was blocked, but no more. So he became known as this like offensive line slash blocking calibration tool. You know, Thomas Jones would uh, essentially be a reflection entirely of everything else around him, the environment around him and nothing else. Now, it turns out running backs generally are quite a lot of Thomas Joneses, but the most obvious extension of this, in fact, I'll add him to this team right now, um, the most obvious guy I can think of that is a current Thomas Jones would be Austin Hooper, right? We've talked about this before, like his grades when he's actually single covered being, you know, somebody trying to stop him are terrible, but Austin Hooper has pretty good production, just got paid because he's a Thomas Jones. He'll get you what scheme. So we might need to we might need to rephrase this thing then. Because average, I think, implies like the legit dead smack middle, half the players in the league are not as good as you and the other half are better than you. And I would say Austin Hooper is definitely on the higher end of tight ends in today's NFL. Is he? But yes, but I think so. So I think average. Here's another baseball analogy, Sam. Okay, listen, I had what you would classify as an average fastball, major league average fastball. They have a 2080 scouting scale. You go 20, 20. So 40 is like your average 
at the end um oh shoot is it 50 now i'm losing anyway <laughs> i had an what they considered an average so we've discussed this before like with qb arms right, let's say ryan Tannehill. like at, ryan Tannehill has an average starting quarterback arm with regard to velocity i would say is that fair pure but but I don't think he's like 15th in the NFL. He's probably 25th because most starting quarterbacks like you've you've sifted through all the guys that have below average arms. And in the NFL, say 28 out of 32 starters have above average arms, maybe 30 out of 30. Like nope, everybody besides Gardner Minshew has pretty much an above, an, at least an average NFL arm. Does I not, would say. Therefore, so I think, mean the average is not average. That makes no sense. No, because it's because because it because you're coming from a pool of everybody right the pool is like every college quarterback or every quarterback in the nfl like matt castles in the pool or thaddeus lewis or whoever the name your favorite backup they're in the pool so to speak of nfl arms yes as first guy that came to mind so so yeah i think it depends on what you consider average i think a lot of what we're talking about is like expected Right. Like when you put this guy, Austin Hooper, in this situation, he'll meet expectations. He'll probably not exceed expectations, but he'll at least meet them, which I, which is a little different from being dead smack in the middle of the league. OK. What? Um, yeah. Did I, just, did I ruin this for you? You didn't ruin it. You just I mean. This is splitting hairs to me. Like you're finding distinctions that are fairly nuanced and in the weeds, and I don't care enough about them to argue the case one way or the other. So let's just get into the team, YouTube's, Steve. YouTube's playing PFF bingo. Somebody just won because I mentioned uh, AAA baseball career. And no, it's not semi-pro. It's professional. Professional baseball. Professional baseball. It feels like there right, needs let's to be get a financial cutoff before we can actually call it professional. Like... Can you they live off me. this amount of money? They paid me. Sure. I was so, so close to signing that minor league free agent contract and really, really cash it in. Also, there's no way anybody won yeah. using that as bingo. Like, that's the one that's like the one that you get spotted to start with because that's it's going to come up. Free space. Well, as soon as you mentioned rugby, they're going to put them over the top. All right, let's start. The all average, the all Thomas Jones team starting at quarterback. Who you got here, Sam? Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton is the epitome of average. He is the standard yep. quarterback in the middle that is capable of being a top 10 quarterback if the situation around him is amazing and capable of being a bottom third quarterback if the situation around him is bad. But he will get you exactly what's there with the scheme and the talent and nothing else. Um, by the way, I just have to look this up because to- I, I looked up some Thomas Jones stats um, or his, his war. So in 2008... In our wins above, we have wins above replacement and we have wins above average. In 2008, right toward the tail end of his career when I think this mentality started for us, hey, Thomas Jones, he just seems very average. He had a wins above average of dead smack exactly zero in 2008. It was perfect. And in 2007, it was minus point zero two. And then in 2009, it was minus point zero six. And then it was minus point zero four eight, and then it was minus point zero five two. I mean, this was this is perfect. How great is that? That like the reason we came up with this idea actually nails perfectly when it comes to the statistics. Nailed it. And, and here's the fun thing about his 2008 season, where we called him a zero wins above average. He had 1,300 rushing yards and 13 yeah. touchdowns. Right. And, and that's Which, again the whole point. The point of 
the position and Thomas Jones, like you put him in that situation, the average running back is going to get that. It was four and a half yards per carry. That was good. That was good for him. He did finish his career at exactly four yards per carry as well. Yeah. Thomas Jones. I mean, this is well earned the name of the team. So yeah, you go with Andy Dalton. Um, so this, this brings up my further point, Sam, right? Does average move with time, right? We always make the point Andy Dalton five or 10 years ago, I think would be dead smack in the middle of quarterbacks in the NFL. When you were ranking quarterbacks, you would say, Hey, Andy, Andy Dalton, somewhere between 15 and 18, right? Like he's right in the middle of the NFL. But I think in today's NFL, Andy Dalton, the starter is like 24, or 25, because I think there's more average players in the NFL. So average isn't just a point in time. It's over the course of time, right? Andy Dalton is the average quarterback, but He's at the lower end of starting quarterbacks, I think, in today's NFL because there's so much more average around at QB. All right. So who are you putting on your all Thomas Jones team? No, it's Andy Dalton. It's right. You're using my method. I'm saying you're using my method. It's not QB 16 at this point in time. It's like expected performance. It'll fluctuate based off of what you have around you. The other one that I think would be worth throwing into this, Jared Goff. Probably got a case to be... Ooh. To be the all Thomas Jones QB, so I think Jared Goff is a tick above Andy Dalton through the and will be through the course of their respective careers. I could be inflating Goff just a little bit there, but I think if you're talking right now, you're ranking 32 quarterbacks. You're putting you're putting Goff probably at 16, right? So I think right now, yeah, he's the guy. I think that sounds fair. All right, running back, Thomas Jones. Yeah, trick question. They're all Thomas Joneses, so we, what we've learned from running backs. Oh, um, they're all replaceable. I mean, this was the thing, right? Like, we we almost anecdotally hit on this, like <laughs> hit on all this research just, just through Thomas Jones. It's like, look, he is he will get you what's there and very little else. And honestly, most running backs are kind of the same. Like, on, a, on an individual play basis, they might get you more than it's blocked for here and there. Right. But, like, over big sample sizes over the over the the distance seasons careers whatever running backs are basically a product of what's around them they will get you what's there and very little very few players are able to consistently get you more than is there um and you know they do exist but they're few and far between and like my whole sort of argument all the way through this stuff has been particularly at the draft right stop trying to chase these unicorns like if you they're going to come along every now and again and they'll break all the the rules and change the system but if you work on the basis that every guy you're looking at is the exception you just you're going to end up on the wrong side of all the numbers you know it's like yeah it's possible to hit a number playing roulette and you know make 39 times what you put down or whatever it is but thinking you're going to do that every time is just it's not going to work right you're going to lose yeah, and so even when I when I look at war and I, I'm trying to find all the guys that are very close to the middle of the pack here, the one name I will throw out there that could be the next Thomas Jones is Sony Michelle with the Patriots, the guy that people were trying to give all the credit to for the 2018 Super Bowl run, and all of his big runs were the perfect, classic, perfectly blocked runs. Right, the run blocking was spectacular during that uh, during that run pretty much just the chargers game and then a couple plays in the rams game but that's like sony michelle's accumulating all the stats but he has not really made guys miss in his two years as a runner and he's been 
you know, very much a product of exactly what was in front of him. So I think he might be the next Thomas Jones there, Sam. All right. Adds only a little bit to the pass game. All right, let's move on to wide receiver. I see the names that you've put in here. Mm-hmm. I agree with one of them. First one you put in, I I don't know if I agree with. First you've one raised I put the in. standard. Michael yeah. Gallup? Right. Michael Gallup. The, the names I threw out there, Michael Gallup, Alan Lazard, and Darius Layton. Um, and I think two of those, well, all three of those guys have kind of shown something. But that's kind of the point, right? Is that you don't, these aren't bad players. These are average players. Michael Gallup, I think in part, I think a lot of people like his story and like what he's shown and the sort of flash, the ability to be better. And I think he potentially could be better. I mean, part of his issue is getting drops, um, dragging his grade down a little bit. But, you know, overall, these guys are solid players. Um, They don't necessarily do anything flashy. They make enough plays, but by and large, are they going to get you anything more than is just there anyway if you're a capable, viable NFL player? So here's this one's tough, right? Because when you talk about wide receiver, are you talking about like if you're trying to create wide receiver one, then a guy that's like a pretty good wide receiver two, you would you would say is average. But I think Michael Gallup is probably the high end of number two wide receivers right now. I think you forgot about our boy. You forgot about old friend. Uh, what's his name? Taylor <laughs> and uh, Dontrell Inman. Forget about Dontrell Inman. He was the mad. Remember that example? He was the Madden creative player. Yes. Right. What is what is the Madden creative player start at? Like 65 attributes across the board or whatever it right. is. Like Dontrell Inman is probably the all Thomas Jones wide receiver in, in the NFL. Is he still in the NFL? He's been banged up the last couple of years. I think I saw him sign somewhere recently. Um, mm, okay. All right. So I think it, I, I think perspective is important on this. Um, there was one other name I was going to throw out there that I was looking at just now. So keep talking. Who else did you have on this list? Those are the receivers. And I think like, receiver is an interesting spot for it because I think, again, you tend to get – you tend to think these guys are better than they might actually be. Like there was a period where Miles Austin was a real Thomas Jones of wide receivers where Miles Austin was having productive seasons, but couldn't win against anything that wasn't zone coverage. Like if he, if the defense wasn't giving him the route, he wasn't getting it. So I, there's something to this idea that all of these things, you know, football generally, you can everything influences everything else so you can create an awful lot of production for specific individuals that aren't necessarily indicative of that player's skill set and i think receiver i think running back obviously is the the most obvious one of those where you know basically everything that people say is hey this guy's production is great yeah but so is his offensive line and Blah, blah blah. But receiver is the same kind of thing, right? You get a good quarterback, you get a defense that's giving you a lot. If you're willing to take what the defense is giving you every play, it's all going to go to that one guy who's just taking advantage of it. Doesn't make him better than average. Uh, the name I want to throw out there too is Muhammad Sanu. I really okay. think Sanu has been, you know, he's been a pretty, he's been a good number three, and he had like one year as a somewhat productive number two. Right. And I think over the course of time, though, it's like, oh, you're going to put up numbers as long as you have, you know, three other dudes that the defense has to account for. That is very Dontrell Inman like, I think. So let's move on to tight end. Are you going to go Austin Hooper here? 
Yeah, I'm going to keep Austin Hooper, even though you think he's better than that. I don't think he is. I think he's the classic example of what happens when you're willing to take what's given to you and just feed a guy. Therefore, his his numbers get inflated and his grade gets inflated a little bit. It's because you fed him. It's like the Frank Gore thing. It's because you fed him 9 million carries of, of average. Therefore, over a period of time, you've determined that's better than average. Like Austin Hooper is the same thing. He just sat in a zone 8 million times. And at some point in the 8 million receptions, someone decided that was better than average. But it wasn't. All right. couple couple different angles I'll take here. I think – I do think Hooper – like, again, if you were right now – I'm, I'm contradicting myself, too. Mm. If, if you were ranking the 32 tight ends in the NFL, he's top 12 probably. I don't think you're going to find 12 guys that are better than Austin Hooper – um, at the same time, I do. I think tight end play around the NFL is definitely well below uh, where it's been in the past. Like you don't like we don't know what Gronk is going to be. Jimmy Graham's not what he once was. You don't have uh, Antonio Gates anymore. Like we've lost a lot of really good tight ends over the last few years. So Austin Hooper, I do think, is a good example of this mid tier tight end. And then you have like your classic blocking tight end. And I think that's Luke Stalker. That's just Luke's like if you're if you want your Thomas all Thomas Jones tight end two, it's Luke Stalker still going, still hanging around the league, still mediocre. Good job, Luke. Yeah. I mean, like blocking tight ends are basically dead to me at this point. They don't exist anymore in my brain. Um, although with the one exception of Lee Smith, like though for the one catch a year that Lee Smith gets <laughs> looking like a 400 pound offensive lineman. That's kind of He's funny. pretty good, though. He's good at what he does. He had what? <laughs> he had four catches for 30, 31 yards last year. I mean, he was like legitimately an offensive tackle at one point. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. he basically is. You look at him now. He's got to be north of 300. Yeah. I used at least to love in that 300 guys. ballpark. I used to um, love those, those specialists. So your thing of like, I think you could find easily more than 12 guys that can do what Austin Hooper does. Like if you took 12 guys, just in this is what the draft is, right? You take 12 guys, you're like in a mythical scenario over here. What does this guy look like? I, you, you could easily find 12 guys that just replace Austin Hooper and do exactly the same performance. Well, we'll, we'll find out this year. Hayden Hurst moving over to Atlanta. And Hayden, and, and we, again, part of why uh, our analysis is saying, hey, Austin Hooper's got some, some empty production, so to speak. Um, it didn't come against single coverage by our numbers. It did come underneath and through zone uh, against zone. And it did happen with Matt Ryan at quarterback and a high volume passing attack with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and everything else that you have to account for in that offense. So I do think Hayden Hurst essentially replacing Austin Hooper. There will be a good uh, a good test case for that. If so Lance is just scheming up production. Like last three seasons, I'm only doing this in my head because I don't blah blah. The he's average what like 68 catches for let's call that six or let's call that 700 yards and five touchdowns, four touchdowns maybe, um, four and a half. What, what do you think Hayden Hurst is going to do this year? So 68 for 700 and four and a half, five yeah. touchdowns over or under. He'll be like. I think he'll be very close. I think it's like 65 <laughs> for 650 and five in five touchdowns. And I don't, yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm not a huge Hayden Hurst fan. He's pretty good with the ball in his hands, too. And if they keep getting him the ball underneath, you know, he'll do he'll do pretty well. I think um, Hurst might have a better skill set than Austin Hooper. And I think at the very minimum, his numbers are not going to look out of place compared to Hooper's last three seasons. 
Yeah, Austin Hooper's uh, receiving grade against single coverage over the last three years. Here's your dead smack in the middle, 46th percentile. So when he's targeted in single coverage, 46th percentile. And just for perspective, he has 84 targets against single coverage and just about double that, 160 against what I call Zut, Sam. Don't this know. Is just Stop ruining. that. Stop Zone that. underneath and top when the cornerback's Stop sitting on it. top. Zut. I'm going to no. change the game. You want Uts? You want to call it potato chips? Uts? <laughs> so against zone, so holes in zones, underneath the coverage, essentially, um, double the targets for uh, Austin Hooper. So that would be part of our concern with him making all that money going to Cleveland. All right, let's go to the offensive line. Offensive tackle. Who is the pinnacle of mediocrity at offensive tackle? You've been in there, Riley Reef, who I think has been that guy for a number of years. Yeah. Um, I think Villanueva has kind of settled into that. Like, there was a year where he was a lot better than that. Um, but I think that seems to have been more of a sort of high point of his career than everything else. I think he's, again, maybe slightly above average, but I think he's settled into that sort of average area of, yeah, reasonable player, solid starter, but at some point you're going to be a problem. Yeah, I think Villanueva is fine. Uh, Riley Reef, I think, makes a ton of sense. Like, Riley Reef is the guy that, like, at the end of the year probably has a pretty good grade uh, or a solid grade. But if you have to go up against the best pass rushers in the league in a given week, you're like, eh, I'm not feeling that great about Riley Reef here. That's the, uh, yeah, that's the sort of classic differentiator in average of offensive line play. It's like most weeks you're fine, but when you go up against a legit elite pass rusher, you will lose and lose pretty badly. And that was that's been like Reese's career basically for his entire for the entirety of it. And the last couple of years he struggled more than that. So I think these two guys are basically one guy has now become below average and the other guy's probably a little bit above average, but between them they're pretty close. What about Morgan Moses? Oh, no. So Morgan Moses has probably been slightly above average at right tackle. I was also thinking maybe Marcus Cannon at right tackle with like and it's more like if you go through like the course of his career, he started out poor. Right. He did peak and looked really good for two or three years and he's kind of regressed a little bit. But so I think it's more like when you take the body of work, Marcus Cannon lands in that in that spot. Particularly if you take Cannon out of, you know, a Dante Scarnecchia environment and yep. you say, all right, somewhere else, Passing. right, what does he look like? Right. Um, plus, um, I would say the two Bears guys, you know, Bobby Massey and Charles Leno. When you talk about Massey's, just like, yeah, kind of become that player as well. Yeah. Just like a tandem too. the two of yeah. those guys, um, the epitome of the average tandem, which which at that position especially is extremely valuable. And here's and here's why, because there's so many guys that are worse than them in today's yeah. NFL. And it's different from say wide receiver. Like if you, if you put a Dontrell Inman out there at wide receiver, there's a chance you're taking, there's, there it's are skill sets. Cost. Yeah. Like there are skill sets that are way better than Dontrell Inman's somewhere out there in the NFL that you could find, even if it's a shifty slot receiver or a big contested catch, whatever it is. So like average at tackle is awesome. Well, it's um, more like it's more yeah. what moves the needle, right? Like if you if you have a Dontrell Inman out True. there, the difference between a Dontrell Inman and like a good starter is incredibly valuable. Like that has right. such a huge impact towards winning. But the difference between the Dontrell Inman of left tackles and a Joe Thomas doesn't actually move the needle in terms of winning that much. What moves the needle a huge amount of winning at that position is the difference from a Dontrell Inman and whoever like the worst left tackle in the NFL is like. Who are we calling that these days? The worst left tackle? 
Julian I would say Davenport. George Fant, but he's kind of upset the last time we were ragging on him. So Julian Davenport. Okay, so the difference, like the the difference, like the needle mover there is getting from Julian Davenport to the Dontrell Inman of left tackles, not from the Dontrell yeah. Inman of left tackles to Joe Thomas. Whereas with receiver, it's probably the other way around, right? Right. The, going from crappy to average doesn't do you an awful lot, but going from average to good, like massively Huge increases impact. your yeah your yeah. win percentage. Very good point there. Uh, how about on the interior? We've got uh, for guards and, and centers here. Uh, so I think Larry Warford, as much as we were kind of talking him up, is a strange guy to release. Um, I think Larry Warford has become like a solid slash average guard at this point in his career. Um, and then old Graham Glasgow. Uh, uh, the Glasgow. Glasgow, as we uh, as some people want to. Glass, glass bovine? Is that what yes, you said? Yes, glass bovine. <sighs> when I think of... The average guard, I'm thinking of Josh Klein. Guy's okay. played multiple systems, and it's like, hey, what can you tell me about Josh Klein? Ah, you know. <laughs> he's all right at some things. He's not so good at some other things. He's going to land right in, the, right in the middle. It seems Josh like Klein. there's a bunch of them that sort of cycled through the Minnesota Vikings for a few years. Klein, Tom Compton, Nick Eason, like all those guys. The guys that kind They're, of bounce around. Oh, you know who it is? Stefan Wisniewski. Oh, Wisniewski's good. Yeah. You're right. He's probably actually better than average. It's just that he seems that way because he never gets given a starting job anywhere. Yeah, because he plays 300 snaps a year. So how can you be? We don't know. You know, we got to regress him to the mean. Um, So Josh Klein comes to mind. And then I was going to say someone else that had also come to mind that I just lost. Hmm. Uh, Not helpful. Good point. Some, oh, Good no. Point, my, no, this is the point I was going to make about the Vikings. Like, the Vikings are executing the right strategy, right? Like, when it's Riley Reef and Mike Rammers, maybe not for the money, but when <laughs> it was those two guys at tackle, it's like, all right, they're going to get better. Like, they're, they're going to be okay across the board. And, and all those guys that you mentioned, guard the Josh Kleins of the world and Nick Eason's well, it, of the it world. Like, been, yeah, it would have been if they hadn't, A, spent a lot of money on the tackles to be average, and B, um, then kept trying to draft linemen who sucked like Oof. the elf lines and the Bradbury, like that's a problem. Like if you're going to yes. swing high in the draft and miss, that's an issue. And if you're going to get average play, like the benefit of getting average play is not having to pay for it. Yeah. No, you that's kind true. of undermine that if you then pay for it and it's still only average. All right, let's move on to center. Who is the, uh, the mid-tier of the mid-tiers when it comes to center for you. I kind of struggle with this one. Um, I went with uh, Matt Skura from Baltimore, but I could be persuaded for other guys. Like, I struggle with center. Like uh, Brian Allen, maybe, with the Rams? Yeah. Daniel Kilgore? Those guys. Oh, what about about Chase Roulier? I love that guy. You know who's really a good answer? Marquise Pouncey. Stop it. Marquise Stop. Pouncey. He's not bad. He's not. Is he even average at this point? His war last You want to hear his war last year? Okay. And, and people, you know, I've talked to George about this quite a bit. It's tough for people to wrap their head around such small fractions sometimes because quarterback moves the needle so much yeah. more than every other position. So it's like, oh, this awesome player added like three quarters of a win. Awesome. But like on the offensive line, it's really low. So Marquise Pouncey's war last year, 0. 0.001. <laughs> it's 
So that's less than average. I mean, that's that's getting close to replacement level because he, you know, had like 15 mm. bad snaps. Um, but Marquise Pouncey through the course of his career, like honestly, when you watch Marquise Pouncey, he doesn't kill people. He doesn't crush people in the run game. He makes reasonable blocks. He moves fairly well and he gets beaten in pass protection about in the middle class of centers when it comes to pass protection is in giving up pressures in a given year. Last year wasn't great in, in part because of his snaps. Marquise Pouncey might be the all average center despite his Hall of Fame path uh, <laughs> when it comes to perception. For the course of his career, I think he's been better than average, albeit just better than average. But he might be now. It might be a decent he might be call. the guy. All right, let's move to the defensive side God, of the ball. That's going to piss fun. off offensive line Twitter so much. Yeah, they don't listen to us anyway. No, they must. <laughs> someone's someone's going to tell them, though. Uh, and they're going to be big mad. Hall I have of a good one for fancy. <laughs> so edge defenders, edge defenders tough, too, I think. So who who would you say? I've got a, I've got like at least a name or two. to. By the to way, like there. all the hate that people are throwing at Frank Gore's direction for being like an all a Hall of Famer based off like 25 years of accumulating rushing yardage. It's not even in the ballpark of what the injustice is going to be when Marquise Pouncey makes it for doing the same thing at center, except people won't even recognize that as what's happening. Yeah. Like he was average for 10 years and we're going to throw him in the hall of fame, but we're going to do it because he had 10 pro bowls because nobody knew any better. Like at least, at least with Frank Gore, people are like justifying the argument and saying, well, 15 times a thousand yards has never been done before. It's really impressive. Blah, blah, blah. Like there's not even that argument with Pouncey. It's just, well, he went to 10 pro bowls. So he must've been good. It's like, but all of them were a sham. Wait till the next Steelers center gets drafted too. I mean, as soon as they draft a guy that high, it's like, well, you know, Dermani Dawson and Mike Webster right. and Marquise Pouncey. I mean, that's what, the, that's what the Steelers do. They have to draft him high. They have to say he's really good and they have to start him from day one. And then he's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Hall of Fame path for the Steelers. Just stay healthy. Next Steelers center. Yeah. All right. Who do you have at edge defender here? So <laughs> Cleveland Farrell, I think, might be. Might be the, mm. the most average pass rusher in the NFL. And, and if it isn't Cleveland Farrell, it might be Max Crosby. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Full Vegas Raiders here. It, like, it, I mean, honestly, they might be kind of the same guy. It's just the one looks a lot better because he was drafted in the fourth round and he surprised people. Yeah, Max Crosby was he was solid last year. It's all like, perspective, honestly, right? Is there much difference at, between the two of them? No. Somebody in the YouTube comments was asking that, too. Why do people still cite draft position? And, like, we're doing that right here. Like, when you go back, it's like, what did you think of the Raiders' D-line last year? Well, Cleveland Farrell, he kind of underwhelmed as a first-round rookie. But that Max Crosby looked great as a fourth-rounder. And it's like, overall, Crosby was a little bit better. But when you do it against expectations, Crosby was outstanding compared to to Cleveland. I think, I mean, this was part of the reason why I think we criticized the Cleveland Farrell pick. I mean, he was... sure edge number five for us on the board and he projected as a good not great pass rusher you know as a, I mean, a solid good player i mean i think that's where his career probably lands is the thomas grades, jones of edges their pff grades last season 62.2 for farrell 65.5 for crosby now pass rushing was a, a bigger gap 67 yep. versus 60 but they are very close like Pass, basically, Farrell was slightly better in the run game. Crosby was slightly better as a pass rusher. But I would say the vast majority of the perception difference with those two guys is that one is seen as a disappointment because he was the fourth overall pick, and the other is seen as a massive success story or a hit because he was a fourth-round pick. 
Like if you, it's one of those, you know, when people put on Twitter, it's like, Hey, player a or player B and just show you a blind stat line. Like if you did that, if you were, even if forget the stat line, if you watch the tape of those two guys, but didn't know, you know, didn't know where they came from, just here's two guys. Tell me which one is better. I think you'd have a hard time splitting the two of them. It's just that perception is so different because of where they came from. Right. Uh, a couple names, I think, for Edge. Uh, your boy, Adrian Claiborne. Guy we, I only say your because <laughs> we've talked about him so much. The one-move guy had the one yeah. ridiculous game a couple years ago. I mean, Adrian Claiborne has been um, that's, dead that's smack That's a good one because he's, like, yeah. he's like the inverse of Riley Reef, right? It's like against most players, he's not going to do a lot. But when he finds right. a really crappy guy, he's going to kill him. He is. Adrian Claiborne, I think, is he's Hall of Fame, I think, on this team. Um, and then I so I'm I'm going to be I'm writing up every single team. I'm trying to go like really in, in depth and detail. So I'm, the Cardinals are the first team on my list. I've been researching the Cardinals and this offseason they signed to Devin Kennard. And he also resembles this remark. I mean, he is he is an above average, slightly above average run defender, and he has not posted a pass rush grade above 60 in his entire career, but he still rushed the passer over 850 times for Detroit the last couple of years. And to sum that up, I'm looking you know, in my research uh, from one of the revenge of the birds, you know, the Cardinals, um, their uh, SB nation blog. It talks about how Vance Joseph got their guy. You know, he got his guy, which is Devin Kennard, whom Joseph calls the perfect Sam linebacker. So I'm like that. If you have a guy that's rushing the passer 400 times, and he's being described as the perfect Sam linebacker, which, by the way, I don't even know why that's even being coveted in today's NFL. If you're looking for a Sam linebacker, like you got to move on. Um, he's the epitome of average. I'm defining average differently. He's a below average pass rusher, mm. but an above average run defender. And it all adds up to like if this dude's taking snaps, you know what you're going to get. But, man, I don't I don't want a whole lot of that as my edge defender. Is a harder concept that we anticipated to actually nail down. What is this is average thing. Oh, no, I'm just adding some the whole, nuance to the, the whole discussion. Thomas Jones thing seemed like a really easy idea to begin with, but we keep changing our try- mind on what average is every two seconds. I'm just trying to add some nuance and discussion to it, you know? Uh-huh. You get a guy that's really good against the run and not as good as a pass rusher, it ends up as an average player. That's uh, Devin Kennard, your classic Sam linebacker. Adrian Claiborne, though, he's Hall of Fame. All right, let's who go to the... Who was it you tried to tell me? Who was it you were telling me the other day was Frosty Rucker? Oh, uh, Solomon Thomas. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Solomon Thomas. I mean, that might be, that might be bang slap in the average stakes. I mean, that's Something like wrong with that comp. That's like, but that's not, that's like average for the entire NFL because Frosty Rucker is like your your swing end, right? He's not a <laughs> starter who accidentally stumbles into like 800 snaps every now and again when there's injuries. That's Solomon Thomas at best right now. All right. Interior, who you got? Again, in my Cardinals research, the fact that Corey Peters is out there still playing football and doing it yeah. in a similar way as um, as Devin Kennard. Like, oh, this guy's pretty good against the run. He does some nice things, but boy, he can't get after the quarterback. So um, Corey Peters' war is almost exactly zero each of the last three years as well. So I'm going with Corey Peters as uh, one Corey of my Peters guys. Corey Peters is one of those players who always seems like he's five years older than he actually is in my brain. Like that dude isn't I, 32 yet. Well, we've been analyzing him as like a free agent for like five or six years. As a, as a right. you know, he's off his rookie contract. He's put together some good years early on. Um, Why does also, it seem think, like he's played just way longer than he has? I, I don't know. Well, he's got like eight or nine years. Nine years. Uh, I also think Michael Brockers 
is a pretty good through the lens of good run defender below average pass rusher and you know when you when it all adds up like he's going to add some value but but not enough it's right, right in the middle so on the low end of like league wide average Sheldon Day who you know we like to come in yeah, yeah. but has sort of progressed into this like solid rotational body that won't move the needle either way for you like he's not a liability yeah. when he's on the field but neither is he actually doing anything particularly productive Sheldon Day is a sort of low-end, you know, league-wide average guy, but he's never played enough to know what he'd do over, like, a thousand snaps. Um, I, I honestly think Leonard Williams has progressed into this, like, rank average player. Like, he's pretty good against the run, not so good as a pass rusher, and just isn't doing a whole lot for you. So here's the thing. Like, I think on the defensive interior and even war kind of backs this up a little bit, like run defense has some level of value, especially, and we've talked to Mike Renner about this a little bit off air and all like, you do want to be able to defend the run with fewer guys. So like having a Leonard Williams is probably, I'd say he's a little bit more above average, but I think when you look at the facets, he might land there. I, I do have three names, defensive interior players last year who were exactly zero in, uh, in wins above average. Did I just lose them? Where did they go? There they are. A few names to mention. Uh, Tyler Davison, who uh, Atlanta, PJ Hall with the Raiders, and then Malcolm Brown with the Saints. I think Malcolm Brown's a good one. Too. Brown's a good one. That's a that's another you know former Patriots first round pick. Same thing. Played the run. Didn't really rush the passer. Those guys were dead smack zero in. Wah, last year wins above average. Okay. Uh, all right, linebacker, who do you have? Anthony Barr. Anthony Barr has become, like, unless you're willing to use him as a heavy pass rushing force, which the Vikings don't that much, or at least haven't for most of his time, he's average at best at everything else. Like, he's not good enough in coverage to be a plus difference maker. He can be exploited, as we saw in those that Rams game back when, against the run. Like, he's nothing special. He had, like, one year where he looked like they'd put it all together and they were using him the best way possible, and he was really good that year. Everything else, he's just kind of been this average linebacker. He's an interesting one because I think everybody else that we've put on this list here, it's generally because their skill set is very average but when you think of anthony barr and when you and think about our draft analysis all the time you look at anthony barr and it's like well to your point he can rush the passer and he's huge and he's got speed and burst like he's a traits driven guy that lands at average i think so much of it is because he did he just didn't make the conversion from pass rusher to linebacker all that well outside right. of the one year right and a big a big like I honestly, I'm kind of sad in it to a, in a way that he didn't go to the Jets because I think I'm really curious what he looks like if you just move him to being a three four outside linebacker and say you're 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 a pass rusher, you're an edge defender now. Go back to doing that and see what it looks like. Play that um, Devin Kennard role. I was I was saying that. Yeah, like I don't Sam know if it's just of. if he's just too long in the tooth now to do that. And you say, look, that's that's not an easy thing to do just coming into the NFL, let alone like years into your NFL career when the last time he did it was college. But like that to me has always been his skill set. He made a pretty good fist of, you know, moving to an off the ball linebacker for a guy that doesn't appear to have that skill set. And it worked really well for one year. But outside of that, it's just not, he's just not able to do it well enough. Right. Uh, names that come to mind for me at linebacker, AJ Klein. 
and John Bostic. And maybe I'm maybe I'm overrating them because this is this goes to the skill set thing. It's like, ah, these guys don't do anything particularly well. They play a lot of snaps. Sometimes they're reasonable snaps. A lot of times they're below average snaps. Yeah. But like a, John and Bostic AJ and AJ Klein. Klein. And AJ Klein in particular, are you sure he's not just bad? Yeah, I mean, I, I may have my mind may have gone more to to uh, replacement level rather than than average for this for this particular group. What about Blake Martinez? Hmm. Okay. Blake Martinez Blake could Martinez. be the guy. He's Preston like Brown. Too, Martinez is almost too volatile to be average because yeah. he just does good. You know who's become? It'd be interesting to see what happens next year. KJ Wright has kind of declined into average. Yeah. Like he's been really good for a while now. All of the Seahawks linebackers last year graded worse than I think they were because they played base every snap, right? So those guys had a tougher job than ever before because the Seahawks are trying to cover 11 and 10 personnel sometimes for wide receivers with base defense, which meant their linebackers were getting like relentlessly exploited. And if you look, you know, even a target rate, like Bobby Wagner's coverage grade was way down and he gave up a ton in coverage. Like those Wagner, KJ Wright, they were all just, I think, given an unfair gig uh, with the Seahawks. But yeah. nothing's really changed in terms of personnel on the back end. So I don't know if it's going to be different this year. And if it isn't, like, it's not going to get better with those guys. So his great, what I'm saying is his great could either bounce back because they actually employ a nickel for, the, for this year. Or he could stay the same or get worse because they're only going to get more exploited with another year of playing base and teams realizing that and actually attacking it. I think much like running back though, the linebacker position, like there's a whole bunch of names that you can find uh, and be like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense. There's a lot of dead smack in the middle average linebackers for this, uh, for this exercise. Let's move on to cornerback. I disagree with the name you've put up there, Sam. Go ahead. (sighs) Prince Amukamara is the definition of average at corner. And has been for his entire career. It's just that because he's average every year and he was a first-round pick, everyone sees that as a failure. You're crazy if you think it's anybody else. He's above average. He's above average. He's good every year. I think the average guy is like Pierre Desir or Bashad Breland. Right? There's the, the average guy at corner, which we know is a very volatile position year to year, when you throw the Thomas Jones of cornerback out there, you're, you're scared to death because you don't know what you're going to get. You are scared to death. When you put out Pierre Desir or Bashad Breland, you could either get like 2000, I think it was 2015 Bashad Breland, who it's like, oh, look at this dude. This guy's coming on strong in year two or the guy that gets torched um, for most of the rest of his career. I, I think the Thomas Jones of cornerback should be scary. And I would say Prince of Mukamara is above average because every year he's just pretty good he's good he's been solid and extremely valuable and teams just don't understand it Wait, that's so my thought what teams you, treat you, him as average you know off the top of your head what the average passer rating is these days just league-wide um no okay like look at his average it's around line, 90 right? it's around 90 or 91 Perfect. So Amukamara's stat line over his career, right? Basically averages giving up 50 catches, 500 yards, two touchdowns, has one pick, and gives up a, a passer rating of 89.6. Like, he could not be more average than his stat line if you went out of your way to design it. The dude is an average cornerback, face it. 
Uh, it's tough to argue with that part. That's the stat lines. <laughs> what about penalties? Where is penalties? Penalties. No penalties factored into his passer rating against. He and doesn't. He doesn't look. commit penalties. Not a big penalties penalty guy. by year. Uh, 43 over his career. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. 43 by nine. What's that? What are we doing? 43 divided by nine. It's like what? That's no, like four, four, almost five. Right. Four, four almost five. So 4. yeah. 4.78. It feels kind of average. 4.78 off the top of my head. Rashad Breland's passer rating against 84.4. You tell me. No, Breland's. It's just one number, Sam. It's just one number. Right, except that was just one of all of Mugamara's numbers. Every number he has is average. Use his coverage grades, though. Use his coverage grades. All right, Mugamara, that's a fair, fair shout there. <laughs> what are um, his coverage grades? I was going to say Ross Cockrell as well. Now, he's, he's like average skill set wise. He's the guy that, like, you go to the NFL scouts, it's like, oh, dude, like, whatever. He's, he's Ross Cockrell. He's, he's a replacement level corner but he's been really productive uh for us through the years but i think that's also like that's like the zone cover the zone the zone corner thing yeah. right so the perception is that he's he's not that good but you put him into some you know decent schemes and he's he's pretty solid he's given up about 60 percent into his coverage pass a rating of 83 solid coverage grades so he's played above average but he's probably viewed as you know that type of guy ross cockrell yeah, Mukamara also given up 62% of passes in his coverage, which, again, I haven't checked that recently, but that feels like pretty rank average number. No interceptions ever. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, you've convinced me, Mukamara. I still want him on my team. I'm okay with that. Because well, I know that's what saying, I'm going right? to get. I know that's just, what I'm going to get from him. At, at certain positions in particular, there is value to having just an average guy. Like, corner is, is one. It's about it's your weakest link. It's about how bad... It's like offensive line. It's about how bad the weakest player is, not how good the best player is. So, yeah, great. You go and chase that number one corner, the the new Revis, the new Jalen Ramsey, the new shutdown guy. But if the guy opposite him is a Mukamara, you're in pretty good shape. All right, let's move to safety. Who do you have here at safety? One name I threw out there was Terrell Edmonds. And again, that's kind of interesting because... I'd probably to an extent us as well, but like, it's like, is that a good pick? Because he was this surprise first rounder. Right. And it was like, he was a fifth, sixth rounder on most people's boards. So one, like if you had him in the fifth or the sixth, like we did, he's probably outperformed that he's become, I think a solid average starting player. But if you draft him in the first, you missed because he's only an average starting guy that you can get anywhere. So, and then us, like and us, after the fact, sort of railing against him as this first round pick, have probably been too high, too harsh on him because he has become this average player. So he's almost like he's no matter where you were on Edmonds, you've been wrong because he's probably just this rank average starting caliber player. Yeah, I don't know if he should have been a first sixty three point six grade last year. I mean, that's still. He's got What's two years of sixty three grades. That's still so, like below average for a safety slightly below average for a safety. So he definitely shouldn't have been a first round pick, but he probably shouldn't have been a fifth or sixth round pick either where yeah. most people had him. So like I'm saying, like no matter where you were pre-draft on him, you were probably wrong. And after the fact, 
like we've been focusing so heavily on, you know, this guy is not good enough to be a first round pick. We probably undersold the fact that he's become, you know, an average safety. All right. Well, the names that come to mind for me, uh, Jeff Heath, who's had some good, some bad with the Cowboys, Uh, Von Bell, I think. And again, this goes to the skill set thing. It's like, I see a pretty good box defender, uh, run, you know, Box safety, run defender, he's not great in coverage, so that evens out more to average. Um, I loved Kenny Vaccaro for a while, and I think, or I wanted to love, I, I wanted to love the idea of Kenny Vaccaro because he was one of those guys that came out as, you know, covers the slot and plays free safety and does all these things, and it turns out he just became your average box safety, you know, dead smack in the middle box safety type. Um, so those are the guys that kind of come to mind for me. Um, the nature of the safety position. Also makes me think of a guy like Adrian Amos. It's not that he's making this team. It's just that he doesn't make spectacular plays that often compared to others. But he's always in the right place, doesn't have a whole bunch of negatives, and always grades well for us. It's not for this team, but it's like, here's this guy who's going to do his expected job at safety, as in carry out his role and not get burnt, not get burned, which makes him very good as a safety, actually. Um, another name that popped up while you were doing that, Andrew Sandejo. I think it's oh, probably Sandejo. It's perfect. Pretty rank average safety. Yeah. Albeit one. He's another, like, I like all these rank average players are kind of capable of more or less on a given day. Like, he, he kind of legitimately went one-on-one with Michael Thomas in a playoff game and kind of did as good a job shutting him down as anybody has. And yet, on any given Sunday, you would be, like, pretty pretty nervous that he was your weak link in your defense. Yeah. Like, like I said, I, th- I think a lot of this is, like, depending on your role and how you're used. I mean, a guy like uh, going through the Adrian Amos way, the guy like Deron Harmon, who just, you know, plays free safety and is rarely beaten deep. It's like, Hey, that's, you know, that's above average safety though. in in, in the NFL, uh, one other name, Kerry Willis, Kerry Willis from the Colts fourth round pick played a lot of snaps last year. Guy who doesn't do anything spectacular, but probably ends up as an average safety for the majority of his career. Okay. That was fun. Yeah. We're not doing we kickers all... and punters. No. The all-average team, the all-Thomas Jones team. Let us know who you think is the all-average team. This play, YouTube's bumping right now. People are watching. Hundreds get some of, questions. Hundreds of people. Yeah, let's get to some questions. What do we have? So, Read me somebody, some uh, Twitter, Ido Avidan is how I'm assuming that's pronounced. Apologies if it isn't. Um, he's got a Von Miller question, and we kind of covered this a little bit, that his – Nine straight seasons with a PFF grade above 90. And then last year was the first year it dipped below 90. And it didn't just below dip below 90, it dipped below 80. So it dropped like 12, uh, 12 PFF grading points, which is huge. But his number of pressures kind of stayed the same. Like he still had 77 last year, which is not disproportionately different to any other season of his career. Um, so basically he was like, what, you know, what happened? Like if it wasn't the fact that his pressure rate fell off a cliff, why did his grade tumble by 12 points so you know we've talked about this before but usually the answer in that is one of a couple of things is happening right if your sacks stay the same your pressure rate can drop off and you're just not winning as much um but we they're not all pressures not all sacks all these things are created equal so you can also change not just the number of pressures but the way they're coming um and we essentially grade how decisive the victory was. Like if you destroy the guy in the line immediately, you're bearing down on the quarterback after one and a half, two seconds. That's a really decisive win. You're going to get a higher PFF grade. 
then if you're sort of slowly battling with this guy, you work your way and you eventually get somewhere near the quarterback, like four seconds into the play or whatever, you might you might earn like a slight positive and knocks the pressure there. But those are vastly different plays. So when you think- pull up Von Miller's great distribution over the past few seasons, you immediately see this massive drop off in the plus 1.5 plays, like the really decisive wins. The last three seasons before this one, he averaged, I think, seven of those. And then last season, he had one. So basically, he just did not have those immediate decisive wins. And those are not like the forced fumble plays either. You strip those away. It's just those immediate impact decisive wins. He was not winning as much in those regards. And the same thing is true that the plus one plays trended down a little bit. Um, he just did not, he didn't have the same volume and the same rate of decisive win as he did the last few years. Yeah, I love these questions. And I think one of the easier ones for us to discuss, though, is always pass rushing. You know, why are, why is this pressure total or this sack total different from the grade? Um, so we end up talking about them quite a bit. I think one other way of just viewing PFF grades in general is dependency, right? So when you get this stat, how much are you dependent on other stuff happening to earn that stat, right? Um, so using the exact example that Sam gave, like when you have that quick decisive win that we would grade as a plus 1.5 and then you sack the quarterback, well, the quarterback pro- probably had no time to either find a receiver or get rid of the, just get rid of the ball in general to throw it away. Therefore, Vaughn Miller earned every last bit of that sack, which equals one sack on the stat sheet. Now, another time that you can earn one sack on the stat sheet is the play that's four seconds long, and that depends on either the cornerbacks covering well or the coverage unit in general covering well, forcing the quarterback off his first, second, third, fourth read, uh, the quarterback holding the ball, the quarterback scrambling into you or whatever it might be, all the while Vaughn Miller, whoever the pass rusher is, is being blocked. It's taking him four seconds before he even sniffs the quarterback. That's actually not a good play where we just kind of like tack on a little bit of credit because after all those other things happen, like, Hey, good job. You sacked the quarterback. You still get some credit, but not nearly as much as say the plus 1.5, which is a, you know, winning in 1.8 seconds and taking down the quarterback before anything else can happen. So I think anytime you're trying to compare stats versus PFF grades, it, dependency and context is crucial, right? Um, two more, yeah, and two more things, two more stats that I've just pulled up that illustrate why Miller's grade went down, but his production didn't. Um, you can two things that we, two other things we do. One, so we're grading the sort of decisiveness of your win, but we're also grading how it came. Like who did you beat? What did you do? So we have unblocked pressures <clears throat> accounted for. We have cleanup and pursuit plays where you know you're not actually winning necessarily but you're finding a way to generate pressure based off the quarterback gets flushed into you or you follow him out of the pocket whatever so la- uh, last three seasons miller has averaged 23 percent of his pressures have been cleanup unblocked or pursuit last season that jumped to 35 percent so massive jump wow massive jump in the percentage of his pressures that were cleanup pursuit or unblocked and then the last thing is we have these plays that we call um, defeated blocks, BDs, instead of pressure. So essentially, you beat your man on the line, but the ball gets out before you ever have a chance to actually pressure the quarterback. It never gets a chance to become pressure, but it's a pass rush win. Last season, his uh, number of those dropped as well. So he went from 31 
in 2017, 29, and 2018, down to 18 in 2019. So he's losing 10, 12 of those plays as well as the percentage of his pressures jumping that are not real wins and the number of decisive wins dropping. So those sort of three things together basically worked against him to drive down his grade, even though the pressure total didn't drop. Yeah, it's a great question. I I love those. Anytime we can help explain uh, the grades, you know, we put the stats out there because they're stats and they they bring context and it's easier for us to explain when a guy has a great pass rush grade and great pressure numbers, we pair them together and we use it to kind of make up our point. And then there's some times where they diverge and we have to explain it. So uh, it's a great one as well, because you can't get that into it into a tweet, right? It's like, you know, oh, his, yeah, there's his pressures are the it. same. His grade drop. Just trust us. We're right. Now, look, there's we can back it up. Right. There's reasons that we're right. But it's hard to put that into a whatever the Twitter character limit is now. Two hundred and forty characters. It's just not going to fit. All right, Sam, what else do we have for uh, questions this week? Uh, so this is kind of interesting from Stefan and then a bunch of numbers. Um, what would you guys think if the whole season was going to get played without fans in the stands? Would that influence the outcome? How much is home field advantage about the fans or how much is about traveling and all this kind of stuff? Now, I know they get the forecast guys, Eric and George have kind of been, you know, working on this at the moment because so much of the predictions, you know, home field advantage is obviously a thing in the NFL. Just look at the betting lines. It's, you know, supposedly worth three points or so, right? Now, Eric will tell you that the actual number is slightly different than that, but this whole no fans in the stands potential scenario throws all of that into chaos because nobody knows what the hell it's going to do. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fans probably weigh more than the travel. You know, I, I, I don't know that flying on a Friday and you know, having to stay in a hotel. I don't know that that affects players nearly as much as your offense in general. It's difficult to communicate. Um, I do wonder if because of that, teams are just generally less aggressive. Like, hey, I'm going to use our hurry up, no huddle more at home than I will on the road just because we can communicate, we can hear. Um, And so then your game plan changes slightly. And then the one we talked about a lot on the podcast last year is the penalties. And, And that was one of the things Eric's brought up through the years that you just have referees a little bit more influenced by the home crowd when it comes to pass interference penalties or just making calls in general. There's like a slight unconscious bias when it comes to throwing a penalty flag at home. And I think those, I think between that and the little bit of noise and maybe changing game plans just enough uh, is one of those things that, that probably affects things. So, the Bundesliga, the German soccer league, is like the first major league anywhere to be back playing. And they're playing without fans, right? I mean, UFC, mm-hmm. I guess, but fighting as opposed to sport, team sports. So the Bundesliga, I think, is like two weeks now back playing without fans in the stands. So that people are just starting to look at this, right? Like what effect does having no fans in the stands make to home field advantage to all these numbers? And the same thing is true in soccer that there, you're – you're more likely to get a yellow or red card if you're the away team because of that crowd noise, right? Crowd noise ramps up. The ref is like, oh, that must have been worse than I thought it was, gives out the card, right? So, so far, that has definitely dropped off, right? Now, two weeks, we're dealing with stupidly low sample sizes, right? So it could be the start of a trend or it could just be freak of the numbers. But so far, there have been away teams have received 29 yellow cards and one red. It's been... 
um, and the home sides have received more, right? So away sides have dropped off in terms of how much they get. And in terms of home field wins, there's only been three, I think, of, of 18 matches where the home side has even won. So that is, now, A, that's a tiny percentage. What is that, like 16-something percent? The standard like win rate is 43%. So it's like not even in the same ballpark to the point where it's like, that's probably small sample size, you know, quirk as opposed to we're going right. to see the rate of home wins drop off by over a half. But this is the thing, right? So one of the things I was saying on a podcast or a radio hit last week that the NFL is in this uniquely been advantageous position of being able to kind of sit and watch what happens with everything. You know, like they're going to be the last league, the last big league really back. Um, so they get to see how things work in the Bundesliga. They get to watch, you know, every other league essentially come back before they have to do anything. Right. And they're going to have the most information to hand when this does happen. So if we do end up with fans not in the stands, I think we're going to have a much more sophisticated viewpoint now or then of what that means than we do now. Right. We can sort of glean little pieces of information that you can probably start shifting the edges you know in this direction with no fans well uh, and even the right now all we have to go on is like snippets and early indicators that that's right but we don't we're not going to know like what it is for a while I, I think one of the things that people aren't talking about too is the potential shift to just outdoor games or at least as long as possible i, I really think from domes yeah I, I i think the the virus is much more likely you know, to be passed in indoor environments. Right. And I think being outdoor. So even if it's just half the season, it's like, Hey, lions, saints, whoever's playing indoors play outdoors until November, you know, that would almost like buy you some time as well. Potentially. I think that's a potential uh, adjustment that could be made in addition to, you know, having fewer fans or socially distanced fans or however that looks. Yeah, I think a lot depends on, obviously a lot depends on what the next couple of months looks like with all this easing of lockdowns and blah, blah, blah. But I was kind of talking about this with a neighbor last night. Like the NFL is, in, again, in a fairly unique position of like, they're not, they don't hurt that much if they don't get a full season's worth of gate receipts. You know, there are, there are right. leagues out there or smaller entities that they rely on match day attendance desperately for the finance, right? If they, if they don't get that, they go under right. the NFL. I mean, it's, it hurts, but it's like, they're fine. Like all their money comes from TV. Same with the, like the English premier league and soccer, all their money is TV money. Like if they don't get fans in the sands for the next year, everybody is still fine. As long as the TV money continues to, to take along NFL is in the same boat, right? The, like the individual owners suffer a little bit, like the, right. the gate receipts and the sort of home, the match day revenue is stuff they don't have to share, I think. That's why Jerry builds Jerry World and corporate boxes everywhere, because they get to keep that money. They don't need to put that back in the pot and have right. it shared out. But what I would imagine would happen if they ended up in a situation where they don't have to, or they don't have fans in the stands, they would just increase the portion of the pie that comes back, you know, straight to the teams so that nobody's like crippled from this, right? I, but my... My point with this is that they might be in a position where they're like, look, we're in a way, we're way better off not risking an outbreak by having fans in the stands and knowing that we can complete a full 16 game season so the TV money keeps kicking in than we are 
sort of pushing the boundaries, getting fans back in the stands, whatever that looks like, and risking a potential outbreak that actually affects a team. Like, you know, if you have fans in the stands everywhere, even if it's like socially distanced or whatever, if you're pushing that envelope and suddenly an infection breaks out and, you know, a team gets affected that throws their season into jeopardy, now you've got some real problems that actually affects the bottom line with TV money. Whereas if you just say, look, we can cover the loss of fan income on match days. We're not even going to mess with that. But but because of that, we know we can complete like a 16-game TV schedule and that money's safe. Right. I, I think there's a there's a there's uh, an inclination that they might lean in that direction. I, I don't know if it's happened in any of the other leagues that have started. I wonder if if there'll be some kind of adjustment to for like your hardcore uh, season ticket holders. If you could have like some behind the scenes access. Let's just say there's no fans. Right. And you take your highest priority season ticket holders and you're like, you're going to get this special feed to the game or you're going to have this zoom access to the sideline i wonder if teams will get creative and say look you're not paying for your season tickets this year but pay us x amount of money for i I don't know if there's ways to kind of bridge that gap just by access or you know um extra extra perks uh, and make somebody's bingo card but uh rugby leinster rugby just announced that they were so they were in the middle of their season when this thing happened and obviously the season is essentially being canceled for them or at least on hold whatever they've basically canceled the next year's season ticket sales. So it's like, really? they're, they're just going to carry over. They're just going to roll over. You know, you, whoever, if you're a season ticket holder in 2019, you're going to be a season ticket holder in 2020. There's not going to be a new round of sales because half the season just got canned. Um, so they're, they're basically just rolling it over. Like if the NFL has a season where no fans are in the stands, I could see the same thing happening where they just, they don't have another year of season ticket sales and they just punt it down the road a year. Yeah, we'll see. I, I like your point of the NFL will have the most information at hand. So that'll be that'll be important. Uh, do you want to wrap it up or do you have one more question here? Uh, I've lost my place in the document. Where are we? I'm being forced uh, to sign oh, yeah. in again. What's happening here? So soundtrack to chaos is this guy's name. Nice. Um, why do teams value so highly passes behind the line of scrimmage for running backs? Do those plays actually positively affect the outcome of games? So this is kind of this part ties into this notion of, you know, the value of running backs. Everyone thinks it's really good if they're, they're good receivers. And the data says, well, even if you're passing the ball to running backs, they're not positively valuable plays because they're targets that could go to receivers or tight ends or whatever. And they're, those are bigger more impactful plays. Uh, and even if the running back lines up as a receiver or a tight end, they're not as good at it as running backs and tight ends. So generally, there's no scenario by which passing the ball to a running back is actually valuable. But what I think is a fair point, which I think was what this is getting at, is that a lot of times targets to running backs are outlet plays, right? They're, they're damage limitation. It's like, okay, pressure is coming on now. There's nothing available downfield. I turn, I get rid of the ball to my check down and I turn, a, I turn a bad play into something positive, right? So it's, it's not so much, let's compare this to a target that could have gone to a wide receiver because the only reason you're passing to this guy is because you, there's nothing open and pressure is reaching the point where you need to get it out of your hands. Otherwise, it's a sack. So I'm, I'm turning it at least into something. So it's an interesting thing because I don't know if there's an easy way of truly identifying the answer because for every one of those plays... 
where it's a good thing that you've turned a potential negative, like a sack or a force play to a receiver that could be picked off into a check down, even if it only gains three yards. For every one of those, you have to battle against the, you know, the, the check down Charlie quarterbacks that just want to constantly check down to the running backs, right? And are passing up right. those bigger plays down the field. And I, that's, that is a difficult balance to, for a start, I don't even, I don't know how you can pull it out of the data, um, but it's a different balance to even manage as a, like a coach or a team builder. Yeah, there's there's a few things at play here. It, look, I think this question starts, I assume, from somebody who follows uh, the analytics folks, right? The computer folks on Twitter who have done a ton of research on that. Our guys included who just basically said, yeah, running back targets are less valuable than wide receiver and tight end targets. Now, I think the interpretation of that analysis is important. And I think you hit on the fact that, yes, so many running back targets are better than like gaining three yards to a running back is better than gaining zero because you threw it away. Right. So it's an outlet. It's it's the last uh, option on a given play. Right. Then I think there are designed plays for running backs, of course, and screens and various things like that. We'll talk about that in a second. But I think it's important not to have such black and white analysis that's like, oh, never throw to running backs because wide receiver and tight end targets are more valuable. Just throw the ball beyond the line of scrimmage. Like defenses know that you're trying to throw the ball beyond the line of scrimmage. They cover that area more. So I think the actionable items on this are, uh, yes, you might want to be a little bit more aggressive throwing the ball down the field to wide receivers and tight ends. You don't necessarily want to scheme up plays for your running backs as much. However, I think coaches also get caught up in, hey, we're playing the 49ers or we're playing the Eagles. They have a great pass rush. The only way to slow down the pass rush is to throw a screen to the running back, right? Is to, is to get them to come in and we're going to slow down the rush. So I think, I don't know that it's wrong, but I think there's a football mentality that, that if I'm going to call 65 plays, three or four of them have to be these screens that slow down the pass rush, Right. And it's part of the greater good. And even though this screen only got five yards, it's put in just a little bit of doubt into Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and all the Eagles pass rushers that are coming after me. Um, so I, I see it both ways. I also think that coaches overrate calling the right play at the right time, because the other time you want to call a screen, Sam, is when there's a blitz. Right. And coaches, the reason why they work 19 hour days is so that they can know the exact time that you're going to blitz so that I can call the screen. And even if the screen goes for like eight yards, they still feel like it's like massive win. That extra 15 hours of research this week got me that one good play call and it was worth it. When the reality is maybe you should just throw in a jump ball to your six, four receiver and he's going to catch it 20% of the time. And the payout's much greater than you calling this perfect play with 15 hours of research. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's finding that balance of designing a few plays for the running back slowing down the pass rush no and then like you're to your point telling your quarterback be aggressive and only use your running back when you need to and then there's the few times like seattle before last season saying we got to get the ball into chris carson's hands when we do it we win get 53 i don't care rushes receptions doesn't matter just get the ball in his hands which is really silly analysis when you when you add it all up yeah, there was a quote from Joe Montana a while ago that I was reading about where he was like, the psychology of just football generally is a funny thing because, mm -hmm. you know, you you run the ball for four yards on a defense. It's like, hey, that was great. It's a great stop. Like, we did it. We did a good job, you know, stuff in that. It's like, if you pass for four yards, 
Like it's like, oh man, we, we you know we gave up something there. It's like, but it's the same same four yards. Like it didn't make any difference. It's either way, it's the same. Um, uh, some of this is the same. One thing, so screens, I think generally work. Um, maybe teams lean on them a little bit too hard, but I think the last two years they average more yards per play screen versus no screen. I think generally teams don't massively overuse those in terms of trying to dial it up to exploit something. What is interesting would be. And I haven't looked at this yet, but looking at those sort of design plays to running backs as opposed to check down plays, right? Outlets versus sort of actual, look, here's a flare to this running back in the flat that's the primary read. Um, I wonder if teams rely on those too much. And if like, if there's an area, so, you know, the data would say that you basically never pass to a running back. Obviously, we're saying that that's not, that's not true because you've got screens that are designed to exploit over aggression you've got outlet plays that are better than a sack or a throwaway because there's something positive there are reasons to throw to the running back what would be interesting is seeing if you know if if it is true that the data says you should essentially stop scheming these plays for your running back you know or stop designing play unless you can see like a catastrophic mismatch that you desperately have to try and exploit there shouldn't be a reason to pass you know a designed running back flare or something like that, right? If you're going to pass to a running back, it should be those sort of, you know, Chiefs plays where the, there's a swing out of the backfield and suddenly you have Kareem Hunt 45 yards downfield against a linebacker. Um, and even then, you know, there's a case that you're better off just designing a play with a receiver. But that, I think, is a potential area where you could look at and say, do we need to scale back on the number of plays that are actually designed for running backs? Because I think generally... There's value in them being an outlet that gives you just somewhere positive to go with the ball when yes. the play doesn't materialize. That, that was I've never seen a better running back performance in a checkdown game than Christian McCaffrey against the Colts last year. When Will Greer was the quarterback, the Colts crushed the Panthers, and it was the game where I think McCaffrey caught like 12 for buck 20 or whatever it was. And it was really like, here's this two-yard checkdown that you turned into eight, or here's three that you turned into 11. Like He did as well as you possibly could but you would never design and they scored six points, but you would never design the game plan for that to be the case because he was limited. All he could do was turn three into eight or three into 10 or three into 11, which just that's not a sustainable offense. It's good. It's valuable. If he did that for New England with Brady or the Saints with Breeze, it'd be like, wow, that's incredible because presumably there are other targets going to other guys. And then, oh, in addition, here's 10 catches or 12 catches, uh, you know, so. Um, a lot of it's dependent on what you have elsewhere too. the, how good the quarterback is and uh, who else you have to throw to. So I think it's a good question. Cool. Okay. Wrap it up. Yep. All right. Thanks to everybody for tuning in on a Tuesday. We've got to apologize. I think Yeah. for coming to you on a Tuesday, but here we are. I did say happy Memorial day to every, I hope everybody enjoyed their Memorial day is what I said. Is that legal? Hmm. Are we allowed to say that? I don't see why we wouldn't be. Just making sure. Um, anyway, thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled Thursday. Be sure to get those questions in. Sam, what does everybody drop their questions? The iTunes reviews. Leave us a review on iTunes. Um, leave us some way of contacting you so we know we can actually get the thing to you. And if we choose a question that week, we'll give away one PFF subscription. So there you go. Go do that. Send us your questions. Maybe we'll read it on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you guys later in the week. 
quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL.